We all know that we've been in a season of sabbatical. Albert Lee, our lead pastor, is on sabbatical through mid-August. And during this time, I've been teaching through the book of Genesis, but I'm really excited today because I get a break from that. So that's good for me. (laughs) Hopefully it's good for you guys too. (laughs) And so today we're going to be in the book of Acts. So if you have your Bible, find the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16. And as you find that, I'm going to introduce our speaker this morning. I go way back with this guy, all the way to birth. This fellow is my dad. (laughs) And so you guys are in for a treat today to have my dad come and share with you. He's been in pastoral ministry for almost 40 years now in San Jose and Salinas and Monterey and is much wiser than I am. So you're going to get way more good stuff this morning than you normally would. So be excited about that. So welcome my dad as he comes to the stage now. Man, I've been waiting to hear that for a really long time. (laughs) Well, good morning, everybody. It's our privilege to be here. I think Steve and Amy have been here a year and a half now, and we've certainly visited them, and we've even been to your church building during the middle of the week, but never given our Sunday morning responsibilities, ever able to be here on a Sunday morning. So it's our treat to be with you and to share in worship and learning this morning. And I'm going to plunge right in. There's no point in messing around, so let's just do it. We are people of the gospel. As Christ followers, as Jesus lovers, as folk who sing the kind of songs that we just sang together, we are people of the gospel. And it's one thing to tell you the gospel is beautiful, but another to show you. And I'd like to show you the beauty of the gospel this morning as it transforms the lives and the relationships and the destiny and the eternity and everything else for three very different people. For those of us who know and love Jesus Christ, the gospel is our cornerstone conviction, our most deeply held and transforming belief. But the question a thoughtful person will ask is, what difference does it make? Has it made? Is it making? And one of the more beautiful answers is given to us in Acts chapter 16 which I'll read in just a couple of sentences. Before I read the text, what I want you to see in this text can be missed as you get caught up in the storylines of the three people. So bear this in mind before I read the Bible with you. At the heart, at the heart of the Christian faith, at the heart of our faith, is not an ethical blueprint or a moral theory or a political agenda, though the Bible has much to say about all of these concerns, what we need to be constantly reminded of is at the heart of our faith is the gospel, God's plan for the redemption, reconciliation, and restoration of all things through Jesus Christ. A gift so powerful, so generous, so beautiful that we're told in 1 Peter The angels long to understand its capacity to radically transform everyone and everything it touches. So let's see how that works in the real-life stories of three very different people. Acts 16, beginning at verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we, we there is Paul, Silas, and Luke, went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. 
the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to, to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, we'll come to that phrase before we're done this morning, turned and said to the Spirit in his annoyance, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, as if they had anything else to do or any choice. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night, and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. The word of God. So we're told here that Paul and Silas and Luke take the gospel to the city of Philippi in Macedonia, we would say Greece, where they seek to reach enough people with the gospel that a church is gathered and formed and their initial efforts resulted in three changed lives, and we're introduced to all of them in this text. The first of which was Lydia, who we're told was a worshiper of God. This is New Testament code language for a Gentile who, while raised to revere the gods of Greece, had become attracted to the God of Scripture and was now meeting on the Sabbath with Jewish believers in the synagogue, trying to understand this God. We're also told that she's a dealer in purple cloth, which is, again, code language for a trader in luxury goods, which means she was likely very well-to-do. She was a successful, self-sufficient woman who had become aware enough of her spiritual poverty that she became a spiritual seeker who discovered Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament, and she wanted to know more. Paul was on a mission to reach people just like Lydia, with the gospel. 
What did he say to her? We don't know exactly, precisely, certainly not from the Acts 16 section, but we do know what he said to other God-seekers like Lydia from other places in the book of Acts, and his message was basically this. And I want you to listen very carefully right now. Listen very carefully because it's possible you need to hear what I'm about to say. Paul's message over and over to God-seekers who had not yet understood the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, went something like this. I know, I know you're seeking the blessing of God on your life and looking for guidance in the scriptures. And that's a very good thing. And there you've met people like David and Esther and Joseph. David was a heroic champion for God, defeating the giant no one else would face. And you might be thinking, oh, if only I had bold faith like David, God would bless me. I would be blessed. Or Esther, who, in order to save her people, risked her comfortable life in the palace as queen. And you might be thinking, you might be thinking, oh, if only I was as devoted and courageous as Esther, God would bless me. And Joseph, sold to slave traders by his jealous, angry brothers, became a man of such integrity that when he had the chance for revenge, he forgave his brothers and rescued them from famine. And you might be thinking, oh, if only I was as gracious as Joseph, God would bless me. But Paul said, not exactly. A plus for knowing your Bible stories, but here's what you're missing. God was always looking ahead in those stories, every one of them, to the ultimate David who fought the great giant, the ultimate enemy, sin and death, who didn't just risk his life for the sake of his friends. The ultimate David lost his life for all who would trust in him for salvation. You'll never be half as courageous as David until you know the ultimate enemy, sin and death, has been defeated. You'll be bound by fear You've not been good enough until you make your peace with God through Jesus Christ. And then you can face anything because you'll know to live as Christ and to die as gain. Until you see the one to whom David points, you'll never be like David. And Esther, brave and faithful Esther, who identified with her people at the risk of her life, is an amazing example of loyalty and love. But our hope is not in Esther's example. Our hope is in the one who left his palace to identify with the human race and forfeited his life in exchange for our freedom from sin and death. Only when you know that he did that for you. Only when you know that he did that for you and that now you are safe and loved no matter what will you live with the confidence and faithfulness of Esther until... You see the one to whom Esther points, you'll never be like Esther. And when you see Joseph forgiving his family who wronged him so deeply, yes, yes, you'll be inspired to want to imitate him. But only when you see Jesus, the ultimate Joseph, forgiving the people who murdered him. And you see, really see that he forgave you, long before you even showed any interest in him. In fact, he forgave you when you were his enemy. Only then will you become the sort of person who can forgive others fully and freely. 
Because the gospel both humbles you out of your self-righteousness and fills you with love and assurance. So you see the one to whom Joseph points will never be like Joseph. There is that tension, right, with the gospel. Is Jesus our example, our exemplar? Of course he is. He couldn't be anything else than that, but he's ever so much more than that. If he's only our example, that truth becomes a crushing burden we can barely stand. Mark Twain had a recurring nightmare in which he was lying on his back and a giant Bible descended down out of the sky and landed on his chest until it crushed him. Because who can live up to the example? Examples are good, examples are helpful, examples are clarifying, but what you and I need is a savior. We need to be forgiven. So do you see what the gospel makes clear is that the Bible is a crushing weight too great for any of us to bear if we read it simply as ethics or morality. To understand the Christian life is a quest to become as brave as David, as noble as Esther, as gracious as Joseph will crush the life out of you. You need, I need to receive the embrace of the one to whom David, Esther, and Joseph were always pointing And only then will you have access to the resources that will empower you to live like them. Only then will you have the grace that will liberate you, the mercy that is new each day, and the peace that passes understanding because you are a forgiven sinner. Sin and death, the ultimate giant, the ultimate tyrant, the ultimate betrayer, will have finally been vanquished. And when Lydia heard that, When Lydia saw that, when she understood this all-important clarification, the light came on, the penny dropped, the puzzle pieces came together, and she believed. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message, the truth and beauty of the gospel. She found the gospel so compelling and so beautiful that she grasped it with both hands and all her heart because it was the most wonderful thing she'd ever heard. That's the story of Lydia. Then we meet the slave girl who has a much more dramatic storyline, right? Here's a woman who comes from the other side of the tracks, the ugly underbelly of society. She's been forced to sell herself to survive, and she got all mixed up in some very bad company. Only thing this woman has in common with Lydia is gender and geography. She has been economically and sexually exploited, used and abused by those who profited from her. And if you're tracking with me, you'll understand that Lydia needed to get something like the last 10% of the story straight. She needed a clarification of the details. She needed a clear and thoughtful explanation of the gospel against the backdrop of her understanding of the Old Testament. But the slave girl... She needed a power encounter with Jesus Christ. She needed a power encounter with God himself. She needed intervention and rescue, which is exactly what happens. Paul says to the demon, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and at that very hour it did. Now, this is 2016, and we are modern people And I don't really know what you're thinking, but many modern people will say, demon possession? Really? 
What's that about? Well, the Bible's answer to that question is it's about spiritual powers and forces of darkness that many in the West, many in the West, think is primitive and that we've just progressed beyond. We're too sophisticated for that sort of thing. I do not share that view. C.S. Lewis called this chronological snobbery. (laughs) The idea that because we're living two millennia later, we're just so much smarter. The idea that we actually get more sophisticated over time. But let me respond with a modern, sophisticated audience in mind, just for the sake of argument. Demon possession, according to the Bible, is living under the influence of something or someone other than God. Everyone, everyone, who actually meets Jesus, especially as an adult with a more mature perspective, comes to see with great clarity, looking back, that they were spiritually enslaved to something, captive to forces greater than any power they possessed. And no one has explained how this works better than David Foster Wallace. Do you know that name? In a commencement address he gave in May of 2005 to the grads of Kenyon College, I've never been entirely clear on where this guy was at spiritually. I'm guessing he was an agnostic. He was open to the idea of God. He speaks of God in the words I'm about to quote. A brilliant guy, but a troubled fellow who finally took his life just a few years ago. But he said, there's so many innocuous, meaningless graduation speeches that get given at about this time of year. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. Everybody. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing the real God, he said, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive, will enslave you, will dominate you. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, you will never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly, and when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Now what's he saying? He's saying the demons, yes, the demons of success, beauty, power, and approval enslave us as surely and as forcefully as the demon that inhabited that slave girl. Becky Pippert, who was a leader and author from the college movement that just has escaped my aging mind right now. But anyway, Becky Pippert writes, the person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance and approval is controlled by the people she needs to please. No one controls himself. You are controlled by the master who rules your life. And one of the most important things you will ever do is figure out which master is yours. There it is. Everybody has a master. The thing 
we think we cannot live without becomes the master of our life, and if it's not the real God, the God who made us and redeems us in Jesus Christ, it will become a relentless, merciless tyrant. It will drive you and torment and terrorize you. You will be under its control. You will be possessed by it. And what the gospel says is Jesus Christ is the only master who will not exploit you, will not crush you, the only master who will bless you because he made you in love to flourish and thrive. He made you for the sheer joy of it. And when you fail him, he is the only master who will forgive you. He will not kill or crush you because he was killed. He was crushed for you. Success, beauty, power, approval, these things cannot die for you. They are terrible, oppressive masters. So can you see the slave girl, a real, a historical personality, is a picture of everyone before they surrender to the only merciful master there is. There isn't one of us who hasn't needed or doesn't need to have such a power encounter with Jesus Christ. Not one. Lydia and the slave girl, so very different circumstantially, but both find, both find what they most need in Jesus Christ. The very same gospel comes to two very different people in very unique ways, tailored to their situation and circumstance, and soon they're worshiping Jesus, loving one another, and serving the world, as we like to say at our church. Finally, we come to the third character, the jailer, a retired Roman soldier doing what ex-military personnel often do. Take up a second career that calls for their skill set. He got another government job for the second half of his life with a secure retirement if he doesn't fail at it because the one inviolable rule in his workplace is you had to keep your prisoners captive. If they escaped, it was on you. It was your problem, and the penalty wasn't a cut and pay. It was a cut somewhere between the chin and the chest. And he knew that. You can see it in the text. He was very clear about what was to happen. So following the fracas that erupted over the exorcism, the slave girl's employers were really, really mad. Paul and Silas are captured, beaten, thrown in jail. And the question Luke wants us to ask here is will the jailer also be rescued by the gospel, and if so, how? So think about this guy. What kind of a guy is this jailer? Well, he's got to be a man of action, accustomed to very brutal realities, a man who lived or died by the rules of power and retribution, kill or be killed. Kindness and mercy were not good survival skills in his line of work. But when confronted with an experience of radical grace and mercy, it overwhelms him, just completely overcomes him. Paul and Silas have been brutally beaten, unjustly confined. As a Roman citizen, Paul had the right to a trial, not the treatment he got, which the jailer would have very well known. And of course, he knew the difference between prisoners. The jailer knew the difference between prisoners who deserved what they got and those who didn't. What began to turn the jailer was the response of Paul and Silas in his own moment of crisis. Not just the absence of complaint, but the poise 
the joy. Having been victimized, they didn't act like victims, Paul and Silas. Their calm response to terrible circumstances turned the jailer's head and piqued his curiosity and ultimately opened his eyes. As Wallace and Pippard would say, if you worship the wrong God, when bad stuff happens, you either get really, really angry or you become really, really despondent. If what you've lived for is taken away, you get really, really mad or really, really sad or you run away. The one thing you don't do is sing a song and stay in your cell after an act of God has supplied you with a way of escape out of a sense of compassion for the man who just a few hours before had beaten you and locked you to the wall. Yet here they are, Paul and Silas, calmly saying, as my Australian comrade would, please put your sword away, mate. We're not going anywhere. We're not going anywhere. A gift of gospel reenactment. They remain confined. They give away their freedom for the sake of this jailer's terror and the prospect of him taking his own life. So don't miss this. Do not miss this. Infinitely freer than the one who held the keys to their cell, Paul and Silas were ready to forfeit their freedom to save the jailer's life. Where did they get that idea? What's going on here? Well, what is going on is Paul and Silas are able to say, when we were captive to our selfishness and sin, a man came and forfeited not only his freedom, but his very life to liberate us. May we tell you about this man, Jesus Christ, who did this for us. Sir, Paul said, you have lived a life of returning evil for evil. We too knew that way of life, but it only leads to death, and it is only conquered by the one who returned good for evil, which is the gift we give you today in his name. The one who could have escaped his unjust judgment, could have summoned 10,000 angels in his defense, endured the penalty we deserve so that we could have the freedom he deserved. And the jailer asked, what must I do to meet this man? What would I not do to get into relationship with such a man? So there's the beauty of the gospel, the beauty, the power, the wonder of the gospel. Lydia, the slave girl, the Philippian jailer, three totally different people with completely different circumstances, all set free by the power and beauty of the gospel, and it produced a church that met in Lydia's home. Amazing, wonderful, and full of so much takeaway. What do we learn from these stories? Three lessons, and then we'll share in communion together. The first is, the gospel is for everyone. It's just so clear. Luke skillfully shows us that no one is above the need of the gospel, no one is beyond the reach of the gospel, and all may be transformed by the power of the gospel. The gospel's for everyone. The great knock on Christianity is it's so exclusive. In fact, it's for everyone. It's absolutely available to all. The gospel is for everyone. Lydia was a wealthy businesswoman and an Asian from Thyatira. The slave girl was a victim of an oppressive culture and a Greek. The jailer was a middle-class, blue-collar guy and a citizen of Rome. Sociologists and others have said for decades, Christians have no right to foist our white Western religion on others. But that is and always has been a fiction that history 
and demographics review, refute. 2,000 years ago, most Christians were Middle Eastern Jews. A little later, most Christians were Greek or Roman. Later still, most Christians were European. Today, the vast majority of Christians are Asian, African, and Latin American. Why? Because the gospel is for everyone everywhere. So powerfully, beautifully described in the lives of these three characters of Acts 16. Gospels for everyone. The gospel is the unifying truth the world needs. Again, the objection that we hear over and over in our day is religion is a divisive and therefore socially destructive influence that must be kept compartmentalized or better yet banished from the public square. And you might be surprised to know I don't object to that statement because religion, especially religion that is aligned with or a cover for ideologies of conquest or self-fulfillment, inevitably leads to all of the incivility, schism, and conflict that we're all just thoroughly sick of. The critical point here is that the gospel is not religion. The gospel, by definition, is the end of religion, for it's the offer of God's salvation through Jesus Christ to all. It's the hope of the world, the only real hope we have. We keep hoping. We keep hoping. Culturally speaking, we keep hoping education, politics, or technology will save us. But they never do, and they never will. Not that those things aren't important, but they will not save us. Think about this. What could possibly unite in common cause and community a trio of people as diverse as these three described in Acts 16? How could you ever get those three characters in the same room? With a little imagination, we can make the story contemporary. I can only do this from where I live. Oakland has got to be the perfect place to come up with this. But where I live in Monterey County, it looks like this. Lydia is the CEO of her own company in Silicon Valley with a home in Carmel. The slave girl is a drug-addicted teen who gets beat up by her pimp at night in some seedy section of Seaside or Salinas. The jailer is a retired army sergeant with a second career as a prison guard who lives in the South County. How do these three even meet? much less come together in common cause and community. John Stott writes, racially, socially, economically, even psychologically, these three were worlds apart, yet liberated and transformed by the gospel and welcomed into the same community. We're told that after Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Only the gospel can do that. The gospel crosses barriers and transcends distinctions that are otherwise insurmountable, and it does so in such comprehensive ways. The slave girl wasn't just liberated spiritually. She was set free from a horrible existence and a whole new life. And some of you, I heard you respond when I read it. Don't miss the racial tension in this text. When the aggrieved exploiters of the slave girl accuse Paul and Silas of disturbing the peace, what do they say? You have to read it with a tone of contempt in your voice. These men are Jews. And so it is. For all our supposed progress and moral advancement, the human race remains at war with itself. We still don't know how to get along. 
Only the gospel unifies people across the countless barriers that divide us. Think about what happened here. When a person is truly converted by the gospel, their very identity is changed. The way the New Testament puts it is we're in Christ. We are in Christ. When that happens to you, you can't look at people the way you used to. Lydia and the slave girl, formerly worlds apart, are now sisters in Christ. And once Lydia becomes the sister of a formerly demon-possessed slave girl, do you think she looked at other slave girls the way she used to? With disinterest or disdain? I don't think so. And there's more. And this is brilliant. Again, C.S. Lewis's chronological snobbery, like Luke was just a lightweight compared to us because we live 2,000 years later. Luke is brilliant in his telling of the narrative. If you've been in the church for very long, somewhere along the way you've heard this. Do you know what one of the daily prayers of many Jewish males was 2,000 years ago? It was this, Lord, thank you that you did not make me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Hmm. A woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Wait a minute. Luke is not just storytelling here. He is making a very profound point. All this sexism, racism, classism, exploitation, and barbarity is destroyed. It is obliterated by the gospel. It is the only thing that has the power to do that. Because when you become a Christian, who are you really? Really? The answer is you're a Christian first and a man or a woman second. You're a Christian first and a rich or poor or in between second. You're loved in Christ first in white or black or brown, a very distant second. And you're free to love everybody because you've surrendered your life to a man who died for the world. Leslie Newbegin, a scholar and missionary to India, was vilified in the academy for saying several decades ago now, what the world needs is the gospel of Christ. Just that phrase got him in all kinds of trouble. And, of course, people objected. That's so divisive. We need to work for the unity of humanity. And Newbegin said, Christians want the unity of humanity, but it is not to be found by chanting the words justice, peace, and love. It doesn't come from a bumper sticker. We Christians believe that the unity of the human race will be found in the man, Jesus Christ, through whom God is reconciling the whole world to himself. And Newbegin knew what he was talking about. He spent most of his life in India. And India has a history of racial strife as gruesome and ghastly as any place in the world. Karen, my wife, and Steve and I lived in the part of India where Newbegin worked. The poor, dark-skinned, outcast Hindus of Tamil Nadu were and still are despised by the fair-skinned, upper-caste Hindus of northern India, and the Hindu-Muslim conflict was and is far worse. When India was partitioned in 1947 largely along religious lines, creating Pakistan and Bangladesh, rivers, rivers of blood flowed and millions of people died. Only where the gospel has taken root is there real peace among people because there is no more potent, 
no more powerful resource for peace between people than the gospel of Jesus Christ, properly understood, because it changes everything, including our identity. Last thing, and this one means a lot to me, because I have kind of a short temper. I just always have, and it's one of my besetting sins. The point here, and I'll get to the temper part shortly, the gospel is more powerful than we are effective, so share the gospel. I think you'll agree, most of us struggle to share our faith, but what these stories tell us is that it's not about us, or even our capacity for articulation. We think, I'm so inadequate, I'm so fearful, I'm so untutored. I don't have the courage or eloquence of Paul. I admire what he did, but I'm not Paul. Well, no, you're not. But it wasn't about Paul either. And be very careful about overpraising Paul. Remember what we read. How did Lydia become a Christian? Was it because Paul was so eloquent and persuasive? No, it says the Lord opened her heart. Not Paul. And how exactly did the slave girl become a Christian? Was it because Paul was so tender-hearted and compassionate? Luke tells us exactly what happened. The girl followed us around, shouting and making a scene for many days, and finally Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and cast out the demon. Do you see that? Paul became so annoyed. Be gone! Dick Lucas, an Anglican pastor, comments on this verse, there is no way this would have been admitted into the text if someone was trying to make up a story. No author embarrasses his protagonist if he's making up a story intended to impress the reader with the character's skill or genius. Paul responded to this girl in a fit of pique. Why is this in the Bible? Because it shows the power of the gospel, that's why. Paul, like us, was a very flawed man. He was brilliant and tenacious and determined, to be sure. But folk like that are often impatient and overbearing, abrasive, and accustomed to having their way. There is no excuse for bad behavior. But do you see, God uses us anyway. Yes, he does. Paul, he uses us in spite of ourselves. And he uses us because it's not about us. It's about the beauty and power of the gospel. Paul may have been having a bad day. Even pastors can be irritable and cranky. Ask Amy. I'm sure she'd be happy to <laughs> illuminate that point. Isn't it good news that the good news can have its way in people's hearts in spite of us? It's why we can face our fear and inferiority and reach out to others and share the gospel with confidence and hope because it's not about us. The gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. So have you believed it? Have you surrendered to it? Has it become the defining truth of your life? Has it transformed your relational world and drawn you into the community that the Bible describes as in Christ. Now, it has been the custom of the church for a long, 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 long time to celebrate these beautiful things in the experience that we call communion. So as the worship team comes to lead us and as we prepare to take the bread and the juice which represent the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, bow with me for a word of prayer and then we'll end in worship. Father, thank you for the laser-like clarity 
of the truth of the gospel to convince us that we need not just an exemplar, we need a savior. That we are all lost enough to need a savior, but loved enough to be offered one. And this we celebrate now in the sacred moment we call communion. Taking the bread which represents your body and the juice which represents your blood given that we might be rescued and redeemed and ultimately restored to the very life you intend for us. So speak to our hearts and convince our minds and bring to light the things we need to see more clearly. Now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.